intentions. He never spoke about the specific circumstances of his resignation as Secretary of State, except to say, when asked, that cabinet reshuffles were normal at the end of a four-year mandate, and his departure had been a mutual decision between him and the President. He artfully brushed aside inquiries about the many published accounts of deep ideological schisms that had rent Bush's national security team and the private humiliations he had reportedly endured at the hands of powerful colleagues. Audiences often asked about his public role in promoting and defending what many considered to be the most ill-advised act of Bush's presidency, the March 2003 invasion of Iraq. Powell had thrown his considerable personal and professional reputation behind the administration's charges that Iraq possessed chemical, biological, and perhaps even nuclear weapons and posed an imminent threat to the United States. In a crucial speech to the United Nations Security Council six weeks before the invasion was launched, he had convinced many skeptical Americans that the threat posed by Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was real. But the war had gone sour almost from the moment U.S. troops rolled triumphantly into Baghdad two months later. A full-blown insurgency had erupted against the occupation forces. Iraq had become a killing field for American soldiers, and after two and a half years, there was still no end in sight. Powell's credibility had been seriously undermined when the threatening weapons he cited as the main justification for invasion turned out not to exist. No one in his legions of admirers wanted to believe that Powell had been duped by the White House, or worse yet, that he had knowingly betrayed the nation's trust. Many assumed that he had privately argued against such a clearly misguided adventure and been overruled. But if that was the case, why had such a proud and accomplished man continued to lend the administration his wisdom and expertise, not to mention his credibility? In fact, Powell had never advised against the Iraq invasion, although he had warned Bush of the difficulties and counseled patience. But the larger mystery of his tenure as Secretary of State remained. For four years, over Iraq and a host of other foreign policy issues, he had found himself entrenched in regular combat with conservative ideologues, including the Vice President and the Secretary of Defense. Though he had scored some victories, the rumored humiliations had been real. He had been purposely cut out of major foreign policy decisions more than once, and his advice had often gone unheeded or been only grudgingly accepted by the president. Why hadn't he resigned? The easy answer had the virtue of truth. Soldiers didn't quit when they disagreed with the decisions of their commanders. The fact that he had been out of uniform since 1993 was irrelevant to Powell. He would be a soldier until he drew his last breath. But there were other, less easily explained reasons, tangled up in the complicated human core where a man's deepest beliefs about himself and the world around him reside. After four long years, Powell had anticipated the end of his service and sometimes even longed for it. He had never directly told the president, but thought he had made clear to him during the summer of 2004 that he did not intend to stay beyond the next presidential inauguration on January 20, 2005. But when the end of his tenure came, and because of the way it came, his satisfaction at having done his duty was tinged with anger and disappointment. As the November 2nd election approached, gossip and media speculation about a potential second Bush term centered on the likelihood of cabinet changes. With Iraq in chaos, 
Some thought that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was a leading candidate for departure. Others were doubtful. Getting rid of Rumsfeld meant acknowledging that mistakes had been made. Many thought the President might ask the Secretary of State to re-enlist, at least temporarily. Powell was still the most popular member of his team, far more popular than the President himself. Moreover, a number of foreign policy balls were in the air. The Palestinian-Israeli peace process, which Powell had shepherded for years, was at a critical juncture, and crucial elections for an interim Iraqi government were scheduled for the end of January. Senior Powell aides, long aware of his determination to leave, had recently become convinced that the secretary anticipated an invitation to stay. They were equally certain that he intended to accept, especially if Rumsfeld would be gone. On Thursday, November 4th, two days after winning 51% of the vote against Democratic challenger Senator John F. Kerry, Bush told reporters at a White House news conference that he was heading to Camp David, the presidential retreat in the hills of western Maryland. Over a three-day weekend with National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice and White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card, Jr., he said he intended to begin the process of thinking about the Cabinet and the White House staff. That afternoon, Card told Cabinet members in a conference call that the President would not ask for the pro forma resignation letters customarily offered at the end of a first term. When he returned the following Monday, Bush's first announcement was that Card would be staying in his job. On Tuesday, the White House announced two resignations, Secretary of Commerce Donald Evans, a personal friend of Bush who wanted to move back to his home state of Texas, and Attorney General John Ashcroft. The President's legal counsel, Alberto Gonzalez, was named as Ashcroft's replacement. On Wednesday, November 10th, Powell received a telephone call from the White House at his State Department office. The caller was not Bush, but Card, and he got right to the point. The President would like to make a change, he said, using a time-honored formulation that avoided the words resign or fire. Card noted briskly that there had been some discussion of having Powell remain until after the January 30th Iraqi elections, but that the President had decided to take care of all Cabinet changes sooner rather than later. Bush wanted Powell's resignation letter dated Friday, November 12th, Card said, although the White House expected him to stay at the State Department until a successor could be confirmed by the Senate. The President himself made no contact with Powell. For two days, the only person at the State Department Powell told about Card's call was his deputy and friend of decades, Richard Armitage. He typed his resignation letter himself on his home computer, the White House later pointed out a typo and sent it back to be redone. Some who had departed high government positions under similar circumstances had used their letters as emotional postcards. When then-Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill was told at the end of 2002 that the President wanted to make some changes in his economic team, O'Neill's call came from Vice President Dick Cheney, he composed four terse and bitter sentences. But Powell was loath to reveal either surprise or insult. He used the letter to claim the decision to resign as his own. Dear Mr. President, he wrote, as we have discussed in recent months, I believe that now that the election is over, the time has come for me to step down as Secretary of State, effective at your pleasure. He was pleased, Powell said, 
to have been part of a team that launched the global war against terror, liberated the Afghan and Iraqi people, brought the attention of the world to the problem of proliferation, reaffirmed our alliances, adjusted to the post-Cold War world, and undertook major initiatives to deal with the problem of poverty and disease in the developing world. In these and in so many other areas, your leadership was the driving force of our success. Powell signed the letter very respectfully, the phrase used by every Army recruit and officer when writing formally to a superior. As instructed, he handed it to Card at the White House on Friday. That evening, he informed Grant Green and Mark Grossman, his undersecretaries of management and policy, and his own chief of staff, Lawrence Wilkerson, although he kept from them the details of Card's call. Form and style, in Powell's view, were almost as important as substance. Presentation could make or break any initiative. After his inelegant dismissal as Secretary of State, typical of the peremptory manner in which the Bush White House did business, he wanted at least to control the way his departure was announced. Over the weekend, he put together a plan. He would inform his inner office staff at exactly 8.20 a.m. on Monday, November 15th. He would tell his other senior aides at their regular 8.30 staff meeting. At 10.15, he would send an email to his friends and extended family. He called Card and told him he expected the White House would then publicly announce his resignation. At mid-morning Monday, the White House released five separate statements under Bush's name, reporting the resignations of the Secretaries of Agriculture, Energy, Education, and State, and the head of the Republican National Committee. Each statement was three paragraphs long and titled, President Thanks, Official's Name. When White House spokesman Scott McClellan briefed the media shortly after...